Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Buongiorno, buongiorno. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. We're in the studio. Um, a short one today. An early warning one. There'll be another short one later in the week. Uh, loads of things to catch up on. I think let's go right into accession of Ukraine. Uh, got candidate status last week. There was a big formalities about it. The president of the parliament um, made a big fuss about it. It was a big occasion. Tell us what happened. It's a big lie, really, I suppose, is the first thing, because Ukraine won't be joining the EU any day soon. They certainly can't take in a country that's an active war zone. And the way the European Union has gone on about it, their very existence seems to be to make sure that the war continues uh, rather than anything else. So, I mean, on the one hand, it was very uh, disingenuous, like uh, pretending to Ukraine that you know, they're going to be able to join, which they're not in the short term, and then poking Russia and escalating the conflict. Ah, ha, ha, they're in our camp, you know. We're going to take them all in and we're all together against G, which is not exactly the best approach in mm. uh, a war zone uh, and in a war situation. But, I mean, on top of that, you have the huge economic problems in Ukraine. It, it would be the biggest geographical landmass in the EU with a huge population. If we were to take them in, which they are actually making a lot of agreements with them and they are accelerating things in their own way, it would the economic consequence for the EU would be massive. And it's interesting that the left group tabled a number of amendments arguing for issues to be dealt with as would normally be when a country sees that rule of law tackling corruption. We know that Ukraine was the most corrupt country in mm. Europe even before the war. Um, so tackling these issues, tackling the stranglehold of the oligarchs, all of these were called for in motions tabled at the parliament and that there should be the cancellation of their debt. The parliament voted against all of those things. So mm. this is just a geopolitical game. It's disgusting. They're using Ukrainians and it ties into Ursula. Ukrainians are prepared to die for the European dream. Like what a... <laughs> Looper, like, oh man, all fairness, would you be well? I mean, they'd be some stupid if they were prepared. To, not, I don't believe they're that stupid. No, I mean, they weren't asked, so yeah, absolute codswallop up out of a horror. But God, she has been so disappointing. And did you see only uh, it was two days ago, the New York Times actually published, uh, which is a kind of a, a state affiliated media in America. And they, they showed how CIA personnel have been operating in Ukraine secretly, mostly in Kiev, and they're directing a lot of the intelligence the US is sharing with Ukrainian forces. And, and there's people been going around here pretending this wasn't a US-NATO proxy war uh, with Russia. I mean, this is absolute, mm. so, so bad. Um, but one of the, the most striking things I thought about the whole accession thing has been that, you know what, if the EU was interested in peace and if they were genuine about caring for Ukraine, 
They could have offered Ukraine a conditional European Union membership in exchange for restoring uh, neutrality in Ukraine and ending the war in the Donbass in line with the Minsk Agreement. We could have brokered, we could have been a, a peace broker. Uh, Zelensky didn't have the power to deal with Donbass. He, he got elected on a peace mandate on con- and the promise that he would deal with Minsk. But when he threatened to uh, engage with the separatists in Donbass, the Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi militias threatened him. Mm. They threatened his life. And then, of course, uh, the Americans weren't supporting uh, the Minsk thing at this stage either. They had changed their mind. Uh, They saw it as an opportunity to undermine Russia. Uh, But if Europe could have played a really positive role and been a peace broker and... uh, we wouldn't have the war today, but that's not what they've done. Uh, when I got a chance to speak in the chamber, I pointed out that the EU has already spent fifteen billion on so-called Ukraine's reform process since twenty fourteen, when the Americans organised the coup in in, in Ukraine. Uh, fifteen billion we've spent there since European taxpayers' money, and what's happened to it? The European Court of Auditors uh, last September said that. Ukraine is the most corrupt country in Europe and there was no evidence of value for money. Billions of the money disappeared, uh, taken by oligarchs and fellows connected uh, with the state, including Zelensky. And uh, I pointed out now that Zelensky has banned nine opposition parties and most of the opposition media. And I asked, is Ukraine a democracy? I mean, we say this, I mean, people say this, oh, we're pro-Putin and uh, we're defending Russia. No, we're not. I mean, Putin is the same. Uh, there's, uh, Putin is cl- has, has been clamping down on, uh, on press in, in, in uh, Russia for 20 years. Mm. Uh, he's introduced neoliberal reforms that were started by uh, Yeltsin and at, at a cost to the, to the uh, Russian people. Right, but Ukraine now, uh, I've, I've, I've actually, actually, almost like you need to copy in Russia, and the EU wants to take them on board and pretend that everything is grand and ignore all their own rules that they've made up before now. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's been replicated in countries like Latvia that are trying to ban political parties and all the rest as well. So I mean, mm-hmm. this is the creeping step of authoritarianism. You know, it's uh, yeah. one thing that came out of it is that the parliament um, did not endorse a fast tracking. Anyway, of the Ukrainian um, accession process, which was a bit of a breather for me. I don't know about you, but the whole thing with Michal Martin at the start saying we need to get them in as fast as possible. There was an absolute like flurry of, of polit- politicians supporting a fast track procedure just a few months that ago. That was ever only a, a, a scam anyway. Yeah. It was only a con job, like the a bit the way Fianna Fáil had been lighten, leading the charge and of pretending to be the bestest, bestest friends of Ukraine and say, I want them in tomorrow. No, I want them in last week, yeah. you know, and it, but it was never going to happen. Like the mechanics of that couldn't even happen. And it was so disingenuous to people in Ukraine and provocative of Russia and really unhelpful. And we see it in the same context of the continuation of the arming of Ukraine. I mean, we had a Tran meeting yesterday where the Deputy Minister of Infrastructure was on and his first thing was, well, we want more money for ammunition. Like, and uh, we want a free and democratic Ukraine. And I said, a prosperous Ukraine. I said, well, I think we could support you in that. I said, we mm. want a free. But given that she had a lot of problems even before the war, like you're kind of a long way off from that. Like, and while you're right to call on the EU to help you rebuild Ukraine, and I think they should, 
do you not need to end the war first? And like, do you really think that you're going to keep fighting now until you defeat Russia and bring them to the negotiating table? Because that actually isn't going to happen. But this is just mm. a game for it's a, it's a money game, really. Well, just to put things in context as well, do you know the IMF uh, have given Ukraine 40 billion since 2014 as well? 40 billion, right? Mm. And in return, the, the IMF got him uh, to drastically shrink the state and they've, they've uh, got rid of a whole lot of regu- regulatory powers of the state and they've opened up the place to public sector, uh, a whole lot of the public sector for uh, private profit, right? They've closed 60% of the universities, right? And they've reduced uh, unemployment and health benefits dramatically. This is neoliberalism on steroids, mm. right? Uh, so the uh, the IMF Which makes it perfect for the EU. Then, well, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, uh, the the EU uh, have uh, brought in some some similar uh, conditions, right? And there was three hundred and forty state owned enterprises privatized. So I mean, you know, you know what? Now, I mean, you'd be worried about the people of Ukraine. Uh, this will suit big business and the oligarchs in Ukraine. And the EU is implementing policies that will not be in the best interest of the ordinary citizens uh, of Ukraine, in my opinion. It will be good for big business there and the oligarchs. And that's the path this is going down. But this, we should just, we, before we go off the subject, right, we should mention the fact that, a couple, I think it was two weeks ago, mm. Macron, Schultz, uh, and Draghi went to Kiev to talk to Zelensky, and it was obvious that they were going to look for uh, to encourage him to actually look at some sort of negotiations and diplomacy with Russia. And there, there was threats coming from everywhere uh, before they went, and you know, don't sell out, don't sell out Ukraine, kind of right. I mean, these guys, in fairness to them, it looks as if. They're a little bit more sensible than the EU institutions, mm-hmm. right? And they're certainly more sensible than the Brits because uh, after they visited Kiev, uh, within two days, Boris Johnson followed on, warning Zelensky not to negotiate. Uh, Boris Johnson is obviously a total puppet of the, of the US-NATO alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? He, he follows them on and warns Zelensky not That's to negotiate good. with him. I mean... Uh, it's sick. Well, I mean, they weren't that striking either because Draghi went home and, and against the wishes of 70% of the Italian people and a number of parliamentarians forced in the sending of arms to mm. Ukraine, you know. So they're playing a double game, like, yeah, and they're know, being yeah. kind of US puppets too. And you're right about the whole economic thing. Let's remember Hunter Biden and the Biden family and US imperialism as well, raping uh, Ukraine economically, even in advance of the war. And that's actually what this is all about. It's all about big business, making money. I made the point, the quote from Julian Assange in relation to Afghanistan, that the target isn't a victorious war, it's an endless war. And we see this now with them piling in just enough. There was even talk yesterday of 400,000 NATO troops being assembled. Did you ever? We have little Lithuania yapping and yakking and carrying on, provoking, engaging in an almost act of war against Russia with the closure of the transit through Kaliningrad. Um, obviously an enclave part of Russia that's cut off from the rest of Russia which has to uh, is covered by international agreements to get stuff through the Lithuanians in a desperate attempt they're doing everything they can to provoke NATO into this war it's utter lunacy and you'd be wondering who is calling the shots and we found it really interesting when we were in the plenary the president of Zambia actually came in to speak 
don't know anything about the lad, but just Googled him there. He seems to be a very wealthy man. Uh, second biggest rancher in um, Zambia. So I don't think he's a radical socialist or anything like that. But contrary to the introduction he was given by President Metzola about, you know, you're on our side in this war against the vicious Russians kind of thing. When your man spoke, he didn't say any, he argued for peace and for a negotiated settlement and that. And we were clapping away and some a few others on our side, but it was striking. The oh, stony the, the, silence, they were raging with me, you know. <laughs> I mean... All the big parties, yeah. right? And including most of the Greens. Greens, Renew. Yeah, all of them. SND, uh, EPP. There was hardly a sound of them. I was mad. Mm. And what your man, one of the things he said was, uh, we categorically say no to war in Ukraine and elsewhere. And we continue to urge the parties directly and indirectly involved to resolve these matters from the negotiation tables. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. And the truth be told, if the warmongers are going to continue to dictate the approach from the European Union, and we have the likes of Michal Martin cheerleader in it as well, what it means is going to ensure the destruction of Ukraine. It's going to mean a collapse in living standards for European citizens. And you know what? It's going to lead to starvation for millions in mm. the global south. Mm. Because that's just, this is where we're going with this war and our, and our sanctions, which are adding to the misery for the Africans. And the Europeans can say, for as long as they like, that that food problem in the global south has nothing to do with the sanctions. It's only about the war. It's about both. Mm. Right? Mm. And, that is a, and the Africans know it. That's why the Africans did not support the sanctions against mm. Russia, because you know what? It'd be like starving themselves. If they and had. you were making the point, Mick, all the attention this week is on the G7. But like, you know, when you think about it, the G7 population is 777 million. But the BRICS, the alternative country with Russia and China and that are having their meeting as well. They represent a world population of 3.2 billion. So it's the point that we were making yeah. that the, the countries which community. represent the... <laughs> Four times the size. Four times the size. And yet they claim to be, you know, this US imperialism claims to represent the world with the lapdogs from Europe and Britain tagging on behind them. And it it is interesting how out of touch, and we saw that so clearly in the terrible decision of the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade to overturn the ruling in, in the constitutional ruling in the US, which gave the right to abortion. And this was something that was very important in Ireland because it was actually on foot of Roe versus Wade when the sort of right wing in Ireland saw the judiciary in the US uh, legislating for abortion, even though it was prohibited in Ireland under the Offences Against the Person Act, subject to penal servitude for life. If you had, they were got a bit worried saying, oh my God, what if the judiciary here enacted? And that was the beginning and the trigger that set off the campaign to get the Eighth Amendment in place, which was in place for 30 yeah. years and we only got rid of a couple of years ago. Um, but this is our like-minded partner. So they're killing women and forcing them to continue pregnancies. There was 46 migrants found basically burnt in a truck in Texas. They shoot kids in schools with all of their gun law stuff. Uh, they're completely racist, like the prison labour. And these, these are our like-minded partners. This is the pinnacle of world democracy that we're well, supposed to aspire to. Don't forget that Israel and Saudi Arabia are like-minded partners as well, irrespective oh, yeah. of the fact that Israel is, uh, is committing a, a genocide against the Palestinians and the Saudis mm. doing it to the Yemen, Yemenis. Well, nothing would surprise you at this place and who they like to nudge up mm. to. But let's go back a bit to Roe versus Wade because this is really... An insane decision what's just happened and 
everyone's in a bit of shock. But uh, I saw you today, uh, Claire, tweeting about Obama and the fact he w- had so many opportunities to actually codify. Uh, well, this is the thing. Is, right. I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, and we go on about the, you know, independence of the judiciary and, you know, how, you know, all these other countries that we don't like have problems and with rule of law. But the judiciary is very politically appointed in the US and Trump managed to get quite a few of his buds in there, uh, ultra right wingers who'd been there anyway. But yeah, it shouldn't have been left in that state. Obama, before he got elected, made commitments that he would bring it into a solid legislative footing. He had all of the backing of the uh, houses at the time because it was, it was a democratic it was a democratic majority but he didn't do it and now he's out banging the drum going oh the democrats wouldn't do that we're the ones so you know it's it's just ah well here's actually 10 seconds of obama okay, before and after the election well the first thing i do as president is, is sign the freedom of choice act now uh, that's the first thing that I'll, now the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. <laughs> that was after yeah. the election. Yeah. Now, how bad? Oh, mm. God. Yeah. What's he like? Yeah. Carrying on his tradition of being a total hypocrite, but yet the, the liberals love him like, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. No, yeah. no, this is a political uh, failure, ultimately. And, uh, and it's just really sad, a really sad uh, development for Well, it kind of shows the divisiveness in the US society. I mean, this is a country we're aspiring to. That country is... Fucked. I don't like to use language like that normally, um, but it's in a terrible situation. And the, the splits and the, the emotion and the very violent divisions in that society, it's a, it's a society in severe trouble. They're able to spend yeah. $800 billion a year on arms. Uh, they cannot address the 1.7 trillion student debt problem. They cannot come up with universal health care. They cannot uh, come up with a solution to the fact that 17 million children go to bed hungry every night in the US. But they can spend 800 billion on arms every year, which if you wonder, OK, how does that happen? Well, and who benefits from that? Well, the military might of America is used to promote the financial interest of the wealthy. It does nothing for the ordinary American citizens. And that's the big problem. I just think, but the reaction has been enormous. It's been enormous in the States and it's been enormous internationally. So they now are in a situation of huge, I think, reputational damage internationally. Uh, But also it has ignited their people in a way in which I think we'll see probably similar to the kind of Black Lives Matter thing. It's nearly Mm. that seismic. A lot of people now know that progress is not guaranteed, that these so-called liberal reforms that capitalism delivers are not there to stay. They'll chip away at it and that you have to be vigilant and fight for them. So that's the choice that people in America are being left with now. They've got to get out and organise and do something to change things. They can't be relying on friendly Democrats or nice judges anymore, you know. Yeah. Um, and we'll probably have a resolution on this next week in the European Parliament plenary, which isn't often, as you know, that we talk about human rights situation in the US. But this is uh, certainly one where I think the Parliament unites a bit more to say a few things about that. Well, um, they will, which is ironic. It's good in this case, but it is yeah. ironic in the context of everything else that make us outline about the state of the United States. 
And there's so many other issues, but the plenary never ever comments on them. It's only on abortion and it's hugely important. It's an issue that we've been very much associated, but it's not the feckin' only issue either, like, but for the majority in the parliament, it is in, in this context. They, they, they introduced measures uh, to deal with another potential pandemic, be it another COVID or whatever, uh, but they struggled to get much money for it and they got uh, multiples of more money for uh, sending arms to Ukraine than they could get for protecting their own people from the next possible pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Let's uh, move on to what was not the big talk of the last plenary, which should have been, is on the EU emissions trading system and this massive package of environmental legislation as part of the Fit for 55 package. Uh, this is all the promises, the legislative promises from the European Green Deal to try and put this ambition of climate neutrality and the 2030 targets into actual legislation so that we can actually get there. And one of the big files was on the EU ETS, the submissions trading cap, uh, system with the cap and trade model, which we're not big fans of, but still uh, it's important that it has some sort of climate ambition into it. So we did talk about it after the immediate, in the immediate aftermath of the of the first vote where it fell in the plenary because uh, S&D voted against. Um, it was watered down hugely by the right wing and then it had to go back to the plenary at the last um, mini June uh, session with a new deal. So instead of the Envy report being voted, we had a, a little stitch up done by the three big groups. So EPP, Renew and S&D. So that's where you have your Fianna Fáil and your Fine Gael groups um, represented. And they came up with a whole new position, which significantly weakened the Envy report that was voted. And that was put to the vote then in the last June session. Um, so just to say really briefly, because it's a really complicated file and it's hard to get the points across, but uh, the, there has been tiny changes to the emissions cap. It's just around four steel plants worth of emissions have been saved with this new proposal compared to what the commission proposed. Uh, copious amounts of free allowances will still go to big polluters. So the whole issue of phasing out these free allowances to big polluters to stop carbon leakage has not been addressed properly and there's still huge amounts going to be going to them for longer. And then there's still revenues for member states and innovation remain very low. So um, basically the deal is really, really bad. That's the mandate now for the parliament to go into negotiations on this legislation. It's very poor. Um, what do you make of the whole process, Mick? You were there in the plenary when it failed and then you were there when it passed with the with the new deal proposed by the big groups. Yeah, look, at, um, it's very disheartening. Um, I suppose when I came here three years ago, I actually really did think, I really believed that um, the right decisions were going to be made around these issues and uh, it hasn't happened. Uh, big business has done the talking. Money is doing the talking and uh, in a nutshell I think the people at home should realise that Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, have been happy to go along with this uh, the environmental ambition has been seriously watered down uh, to protect uh, profits of big business that's about as much as in, in, in black and white terms I'm afraid that's what it is the saddest, well, I suppose there's two sad things about it. The, the first is that, like, they kind of waffle on and they justify this by, oh, we're the best there is, we're the best in class. And that may be true. That's even more frightening then because you might be the best in the class, 
but the class is not in compliance with science's requirements for what we need to do to save the planet. So it doesn't really matter if you're better than all the other Egypts, if you're all going to fail anyway, Mm. you know. Uh, And that's sadly what we have agreed a package that is not compliant with what science said is necessary if we are going to save the planet. And that is really scary. And the second even scarier bit about that is that that big rollback by the European Parliament and all the, the contradictions around it And the Irish media didn't pick it up at all. Not a single word about it. The Irish Times, um, well, sorry, the the Tony Connolly from RTE, who I don't think knows the Parliament exists, discovered the Parliament that same week to do a pathetic little article about some spurious, one of these platform things that they set up are, you know, a vote watch thing to say that the Irish and the Portuguese were the least critical of Russia in parliamentary votes and blaming myself and Mick mainly and then having a kick at the shinners, the usual sort of stuff that they do. And they do a full article on that and they don't say anything at all about the rollback on the climate package. I mean, it's just a nonsense article which was sort of conflating or confused, saying we were the least critical of Russia, which is not true. We're very critical of Russia. What we aren't is aggressive in our attitude towards, come on, lads, come out and have a fight. We'll get you rubbish, because that's not actually what the people of Europe want. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's gas, right? But uh, the Irish media, there's a strong element of the Irish media at home, a lot of them have a problem with the fact that we're not nodding donkeys mm. and that we actually think for ourselves and we're not just being doing what we're told by big parties. Mm. They have a problem with the fact that we don't clap like seals uh, when you're supposed to. I mean, uh, we're not allowed to have a mind of our own. We're not allowed to actually develop uh, a position on something uh, irrespective of how much research we might do. Uh, Jesus Christ Almighty, the media at home uh, are a basket <laughs> so case. Bad. But well, that, how bad are mm-hmm. they? I mean, have we the worst media on the planet? Oh, God, now, I don't know about that. Um, and, and the funny thing is, right, because we've done a couple of podcasts or programmes for people and it was gas. We did one with the guy Crispin in the, the UK. And the first thing he said was, oh, you guys are great. We, you're a great hope for us in the UK because our media is terrible and we're uh, you know, and our politicians are terrible and you kind of shine out for us so we follow what you do in the plenary. Next day we do them with a fella in America. It's exact same thing. He said, oh, yourself and Mick Wallace, you're the only ones out there. You give us great hope because our media is terrible here. It must be a lot better in Ireland. You're going, now listen, lads. And the amount of people who said, oh, we were thinking of moving to Ireland because it's great. That Don't go there, lads. That's Don't go there. But, um, oh, did you Jesus. not know we're an embarrassment yeah, and a disgrace? Ah, uh, yeah, a disgrace. And an embarrassment. And a disgrace. And an embarrassment. But they can't handle it. So I'll tell you a lovely story, which I haven't even told you yet. So my good friend, Dean Mulligan, my councillor in, in Swords, great local campaigner, is actually on his way at the moment to Finland for Aaron, his good friends. He's the best man at Aaron's wedding, but he had been in Tenerife. But he texted me last night to say he was transiting through Amsterdam airport with his girlfriend. No lie. And he sits down. So not an Irish flight like so going from Tenerife (laughs) to Amsterdam to Finland. And the people sitting beside him in the cafe were listening to my speech from the plenary. (laughs) I kid you not. (laughs) (laughs) Flabbergasted. And he said he was just chuffed, but he just thought, but you know, we've had that. Like we have mixed as like the thousands and thousands of retweets on his stuff this week from the plenary last week. 
the global reach, we we get it here. When people visit the parliament from other countries, they kind of come up to us, you know. Mm. And you'd be thinking now that this is something I would say, isn't that exactly the role that a neutral country who wants to be friends with everybody, who says we shouldn't be having conflict, let's all try and work things out together, can play that role. But no, no, instead they need to ratchet up the divisions. I mean, so many of the journalists, so-called journalists at home, have reduced us to, uh, oh, so they're just puppets of Russia and China. Oh, mother of God, like, are they well? <laughs> well, not only that, to the point of where they've actually got to say, we, you can't associate with us because we're kind of toxic, uh, which is, a, a, you know, a, a myth that they've invented as well. But pathetic, really, you know. But anyway, what can you do? You, you were in the Econ Committee there, um, making the Economics and Monetary Affairs Committee with none other than uh, Christian Christian Lagarde. Oh, batting his <laughs> eyes at her, he was. Glaring up admiringly. <laughs> How do you know you weren't there? Ah, I saw you on the TV. Um. <laughs> No, I mean, that's Christian Lagarde. Christine Lagarde is a would be regarded as a big hitter. She was the head of the IMF and did untold damage when she was there for a number of years. Uh, but now she's the head of the ECB. And uh, I got an opportunity to challenge her on what the ECB are at. And I said, I pointed out to her that since 2008, inequality has been rising and that... Uh, uh, many years of central bank support for the rich, uh, coupled with punitive of, of austerity for others, has led to chronic underinvestment and low wages. And uh, I said, you know, the, the central banks have literally plucked the money tree ferociously to boost shares and house prices, uh, while they let wages collapse. And uh, asset price inflation and inequality has become the order of the day. And I said, you know, you could take a different approach, I said. You're, you, they're going to introduce measures now to introduce to reduce inflation, right? Okay, you might say, that's fine, right? But in actual fact, uh, what people don't realise is that this reduction of inflation is something to support uh, the asset rich more than the ordinary people. And what the ECB could be doing is investing in the ordinary people, investing more in the environment, putting the money where it should go instead of protecting uh, the top 5%, because that's what the ECB do most of the time. They could be encouraging all the member states to build social housing. Uh, there's a whole lot of good things to do. Invest more in health. And this this is doable, but they choose not to. And when I put it to her, she says, well, she says, and I, I listen, she was actually, she, she, actually, she was pretty strong on her answer, right? And she said, we have a mandate, she says, from the European Union. We're... Supposed price stability. Yeah, yeah, it's all about price stability. That's our mandate, and that's what we do, and that's what we uh, are supposed to do. So, you know, if you want us to, to to behave different, give us a different mandate. But of course, which is treaty change, which is not. Yeah, happen, but I mean, so. give, give, given that neoliberalism is enshrined in the EU treaties, mm. we cannot don't be expecting that today or tomorrow. Yeah. But I mean, there is massive potential in this for things to be done so much better. And instead of protecting the asset rich, uh, we could actually be helping the people and the environment uh, instead. Yeah, I won't hold my breath for that though. <laughs> so, um, let's finish up talking a bit about what happened in Malia just the other day. We were just talking about this tragedy in uh, Texas with these Mexicans discovered in a, a truck, or sorry, 
these migrants found in a truck. Um, also, there's been horrible scenes coming from Malia in the north of Morocco, um, owned by Spain, little exclave, where I don't know how many migrants have been killed. I think killed about 87 there. at least was yeah. the highest uh, it's, figure. It's gone higher. Since then. Yeah. And the pictures of the bodies mounted up. I mean, what we're seeing now, and again, like the US, we have to put this back to the constant nonsense about European values, like, you know. So here we have desperate people trying to get to Spain and, and build a better life for themselves and are literally, well, you use the phrase, I mean, they, they've been killed by the state. And the, and the Spanish prime minister, who is supposedly a socialist in government with the communists and people in our group, gets up and thanks the police and the state for keeping Spain safe from these kind of marauding hordes. And really what he's talking about is desperate migrants who have been effectively murdered and their bodies piled up and people injured and hurt lying beside dead bodies in a mountain. It's the most nauseating thing ever. And the fact that that isn't front page news is actually the US truck has got more prominence than that even in Ireland. It's just incredible. While at the same time, the pushbacks of migrants in Greece continues, people dying in the Mediterranean. We're coming into the season where that's going to escalate. The Greek minister was in yesterday lying his head off, uh, completely demonstrable lies about migrants not being the subject of violence by the state, not being pushed back, even though even the UN is investigating these. So these are our European values that we aspire to. No one ever gives out about Spain for breaking rule of law stuff, you know? Yeah, and listen, I mean, people should ask themselves all the time, where do the migrants come from? Why are they moving? Why are they leaving their homes uh, in search of uh, an opportunity to, to make a life for themselves? And the truth be told that the relation of the EU to, to the continent of Africa has been and still is one of brutal capitalist exploitation in the service of maintaining Western corporate profits. And uh, the, the criminal uh, history has cemented in place a structure of intentional de-development and that, that sees so much of African's wealth uh, flow north. We are still colonised the place. We are keeping them poor so that we can make profits. Mm. And we think that's fine. This is uh, it's crazy. Mm. And uh, Only last week we had a debate on the EU-Africa um, summit and... Um, but. There's just complete denial as to what's really happening. I mean, we are still colonialists. And we're completely violating international law by denying everybody has the right to seek asylum. But people are being prevented from getting to Europe shore physically and in violation of international law to prevent them from exercising that legal right that everybody has. And yet we're supposed to be the upholders of everything. So, I mean, people had made the point, like if this was happening in Russia or China or Nicaragua or Venezuela, we there'd be emergency meetings, the plenary would be recalled to discuss this. But I haven't heard a single word from any mm. EU member state condemning this at all. The only comments have been Spain praising it. It would make you want to vomit. Oh, really it's would, you know? yeah. More European Human values. Human life is just absolutely nothing to them. Mm. I mean, when, when MEPs get up and talk about the great European values as opposed to the others who don't have our European values, and then we watch this happening. European values in action again. Mm. Yeah, let's leave on that note then. Um, we'll be back later in the week for another short episode. Um, Right? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, so then, 
Ci vediamo 